0: after this. so uh, If you'd bow your heads, I want to begin by praying an ancient prayer. Lord, our God, uh, we bless and thank you for the gift of your word. Grant your servants both the humility and the boldness necessary to preach it. Prepare our hearts and lives to be strengthened and changed by it. You've given us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master. Grant that we as as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, so we may also gratefully share it with others. And ever give glory to you by whose grace alone we are what we are. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, I thought that was an appropriate prayer to kind of end our missions series or our witnessing series. The past few weeks have been a study of the days following Jesus' resurrection, if you've been with us, and this week we're going to focus on uh, his return to heaven, his ascension, uh, and really the beginning of the church. And, you know, as we look at the disciples, uh, it's important to remember that none of the remaining 11 disciples were even close to be formally trained as rabbis or teachers or anything of the sort. They were fishermen. They were carpenters, and they were former tax collectors, right? You know, uh, some of them came from the poor and the marginalized. They were guys that you would walk by on the street, every day on the street, and not even pay attention to, probably, they were just regular people. Uh, But God used each of them uh, to bring a very drastic change to the world, if you think about that. And that's important, uh, because it reminds us That throughout Scripture and throughout history, God's most important work has rarely been accomplished by experts or really highly qualified people at all, right? Uh, Great news for us who uh, feel very unqualified as ministers of the gospel, Uh, the testimony of Christ's life and power of the Holy Spirit aren't limited, therefore, just to a select few of people. You know, uh, all who are in Christ are called to the ministry of spreading the gospel, first in our homes, then in our communities, and then out into the world. And we don't have to be trained pastors or teachers in order to share the work that God has done in our hearts. We know that story, right? So turn with me to page 743 in your pew Bibles. Uh, We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 1. Verses uh, 1 through 11. We're going to start in verse 1, go through 11. We're going to kind of uh, go through it piecemeal. So keep the Bible open on your lap. Uh, And remember from a few weeks back, we had said that Luke, uh, that scholars had, um, through textual evidence and through uh, archaeology and history and stuff like that, have found Luke to be absolutely trustworthy in his writings. So Acts 1. Acts 1 verse 1, it starts like this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, in other words, after his crucifixion and And then after he rose from the dead, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's stop there for a minute. Jesus, at this point, has been crucified, obviously, and he's risen from the dead. And he's appeared to people. He's met with them. He's talked with them. He's uh, ate ate meals with people. And now he's ascending to heaven in this passage. And he will empower the disciples with the Holy Spirit for the ministry that lies before them. So he's empowered them with his words. He's empowered them with his witness or his modeling, and now he's empowering them in the spirit. And so uh, by this point, he has given them the great commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which uh, if you're around 6 to 8 long enough, you'll hear this quoted quite often. But at that moment, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So that's the great commission for the church. George Verver once said that there are many worthy causes which distract people from the greatest one or the greatest cause. Right, and that is the greatest cause, the Great Commission. Right, call—it was their calling from Christ, and it is also ours to take the message of the gospel to all peoples, right, to all nations. Nations is people groups, all the different people groups of the world. And they say that a declining mis- interest in mission is a sure sign that a church has lost their first love. Right? So if we don't desire to share Jesus, we really aren't in love with Jesus, so to speak. And sadly, Christians are often more concerned about many other issues than this issue. Right, more, They're more apt to share the news about the best restaurant in town than they are to share with their friend about Jesus Christ. Although it concerns eternity in the hearts of their friend, they still don't share. But at this point in this story, the calling of the disciples is solidified. It is cemented in them, or it should be. (laughs) And they're in the final moments with Jesus as it continues in verse 6. We read, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has sent by his own son. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So right there, still, it's a sign that they're still not fully getting it, right? They still are kind of confused. They're asking this question, <coughs> and they're remaining, their, their thoughts are remain focused on this Messiah that they had always expected to come with militaristic power and free them from the power of Rome, right? So they're really not getting it. They're not realizing their own call to ministry right now. They're not owning the fact that it's going to be some suffering for them, right? It's as if they're saying, well, we want you to do the heavy lifting. We want you to do all the work. We don't really want to do all that. When he has clearly given them their purpose and their calling in this kingdom ministry. And they so they're to continue on in this ministry, which he's uh, outlined, he's modeled for them, he's spoken about. Jesus responds as any leader does at this moment when they ask this question, and he says, quit asking questions about things that don't concern you. You get to the task that I've called you to, and I will take care of all the rest. That's basically what he's saying to them. And it continues in verse 10. He said, they were looking intently up into the sky, As he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, as a kid, I remember going to the 4-H fair. I don't know if anybody here has ever gone to a 4-H fair. It's kind of like carnival slash farm stuff, you know, it was just so much fun. It was so much activity swirling about, it was a blast for a little kid. Blinking lights, you know, announcers inviting you into the strange and the mysterious, the weird things, you know, of life. Um, The tilt-a-whirl was there, you know, the Ferris wheel, animal pens and judging of animals and all that kind of stuff, just so much fun. Everything was so exciting, so much happening, right, and I loved it as a little kid, and we were all amped up on cotton candy, (laughs) you know, when we got there, we bummed around with all our buddies, We'd, we'd get there, and my parents would say, okay, see you guys later, see you at 9 p.m., we'll meet right here, and then we would take off like a shot, right, and we'd just do all this stuff, it was a great night. And then when it then it then it was over, right? It it ends, right? The tents would pack up, and uh, you know there was no more funnel cake, and your friends would go home, and the trucks would roll out, and the only reminder of the 4-H fair was an empty field with trash blowing around it. Now now all I could do was go and tell my friends that weren't there all about the 4-H Fair, right? And if I had a friend that was with me at the 4-H Fair next to me, we were both just bombarding them with, you know, experiences and memories and how great it was and you gotta go next year when it returns and all this kind of stuff. And I'd recount the stories of the thousand pound pig that they nicknamed Calorie, or the motorcycles that, you know the motorcycles that run around in that barrel and they grab dollars from you you while they drive by? The haunted house with the weird mirrors and all the other fun details. I would talk about all that stuff. And I was so excited to share that. So excited. But over time, over the next coming year, memories fade until it comes back around the next year. Right? Now, as an adult pastor, all grown up, all growed up, um, I, I don't go to the 4-H Fair too much unless I have, like, kids, little kids that want to go or whatever. But... Um, now I go to conferences or workshops and things like that. And, you know, we get there and we worship and we listen to great speakers and we have insightful discussions about the gospel and about church and all that stuff. And we talk to sort of the church growth experts and all those, that stuff. There's no giant pig, mind you, but it's still exciting for an adult. We, 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 <laughs> our standards are lower as adults. And, but that comes to an end as well, doesn't it? You know, we we leave armed with all the new ideas, all the words and a bunch of information that we can't fit into our carry on. And we don't know what to throw out to get back on the plane. And we get on that plane and we come home to the very familiar, to our regular lives and to others who have not had the experiences. Right. And and they've not heard all the stories. They've not heard the great speakers. And now uh I have to come back here and use all that I've learned and all that I've experienced and implemented here with you guys. You know, to put the principles into practice and share with others the stories uh, that I experienced and the words that I heard at that conference. So imagine this, Jesus ascends and these guys are standing around there staring at the sky. By the way, that's my oldest son, Aidan. And if he's running around taking pictures it's for we're launching a new website monday so he's taking pictures for that um so they're standing around looking in the into the sky you know staring staring at the sky and the carnival has ended the conference is over Um, the speaker's gone home, so to speak, right? And now they're standing there armed with all the words and the experiences and the new ideas and the call to go implement this in their homes and their community and out to the ends of the earth, the Great Commission, And, you know, they're standing there looking at the empty field with the trash blowing around, so to speak. Right. And they hear these these guys say, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the show's over. Right. The show's over. What are you doing standing around? Right? There's work to be done. Get back home. Go back to Jerusalem and start telling people about this. Right? Now it's difficult to motivate and direct, isn't it? Ministry has always been like herding cats. Especially in the age of the internet. There are about a million and one voices rattling around in your head speaking at you all the time. And I'm only one of them for about 30 minutes a week. Um... It's difficult. It's really difficult to get people to focus and to realize that the details of ministry are of paramount importance to them and in their lives and to the people around them, more so than any other aspect of life. The gospel is the most important thing, and it is all in company, uh, encompassing it, as a matter of fact. You know, they say a person decides within the first five minutes of arriving at a church from the, on their first visit, in the first five minutes, whether or not they're gonna come back to that church. Do you know that? It's one of the things we hear at conferences. <laughs> um, and if that's true, who is the most important person in the room? Is it the pastor? No, this morning it was Tomoko, because Tomoko was the greeter at the front door. I hope you do, good job. <laughs> right? You know, the the greeter is the most important person when you arrive at church. What they say to you, how warm they are, how welcoming they are. Do they give you the the direction needed uh, for a new person, you know, when they show up? Or do they just say, hi, it's upstairs? You know, are they texting when you get there? Or are they on the phone with somebody and just kind of pointing up the stairs, you know, when you show up? If a family shows up with children, you know, do they direct them to the right people and what to do and actually go and introduce them to those people so that they can feel comfortable about where, I mean, we worry most about what happens to our kids. We want to know they're safe, right? We want to know that there's a process. Or, and I'm not saying this to make anybody feel guilty, but How do people, new people, feel when they show up to a church two minutes before church is supposed to start and there's nobody in the room? There's like five people or ten people sitting in the room. And then people start to come in, you know, all the way through the first worship set. What does that make them think? What does that make them feel is the question, right? See, that first greeting that first experience of church might be the actual difference in a person actually staying long enough to hear the gospel and to meet Jesus and have their life changed forever. Do you ever think about that? See, it's hard to get people to realize, to recognize that their presence, their presence makes a huge difference. That them coming early and leaving late and, and actually engaging in conversation with other people before and after is after you know is actually an opportunity to, to minister to someone or to be ministered to. You might have something done for you or said for you, said to you that morning that you really needed and you didn't realize it, but the Holy Spirit knows it. It's hard to get people to realize. Or believe that they have something to give God has gifted each one of you specially, right it's hard to get people to realize that a, that a simple word of encouragement from them to someone else or to say you know what can I pray for you right now and actually do it on the spot you know may mean the difference to a person in profound ways they it, that, that we don 't have to have ti- the title of pastor in front of our names to be a minister of the gospel. We are all ministers of the gospel. it 's hard to get people to realize that they are actually the, the, the fishermen and the carpenters and the tax collectors that Jesus intends to use. No matter how old you are, by the way, if you 're in high school or you 're got one foot in the grave, whatever. yeah some of us feel that way right Um, but do we listen to the announcements do we consider what great opportunities are standing before us that we can participate in uh, what God is doing in our Jerusalem our Judea and, and 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 out and beyond that you know, we've handed out these invites. We've announced Alpha for a number of weeks now. We've urged everyone to be prayerful about who they could invite and to invite them and to use those, those printed invites that we just showed you to, to, and give them to the people that need to be here to hear the gospel. In church conferences, they direct pastors to preach the announcements, to weave into your sermon the most important announcements, hence what I'm doing right now. I'm a good student, right? You know, there's, you've heard the common statistic in church that 20% of the congregation does 80% of the work. And that concept comes from the Pareto principle. Uh, it's an observation. It's not necessarily a law, but it's an observation that most things in life are not distributed evenly, Right? That it might mean that 20% of the input creates 80% of the result, 20% of the workers produce 80% of the result, or 20% of the customers create 80% of the revenue, or 20% of the bugs cause 80% of the crashes, or 20% of the features cause 80% of the usage. And the examples could go on and on and on. Right. And the point is to realize that you can focus your effort on the 20 percent that makes the difference instead of the 80 uh, uh, percent. That doesn't really add value. Right. To whatever you're doing in economic terms, there's this diminishing marginal benefit. Right. This is related to sort of the law of diminishing returns. Each additional hour. Uh, or of effort, or each extra worker that you that is at you know that you put into the system is adding less umph to the final result, right? So at the end, you're spending lots of time on the minor details, and you need to sort of maximize the opportunities available. And but here's the problem: that that shouldn't be true of the church. It should not be true of the church, since it is the Lord Jesus, not Pastor Jason, that is called all Christians, into this kingdom work. Pastors across the country would say this to their church, but it's not us that said it. We're preaching what he said, right? So he has called us to this work. So you got to wonder why is this sense of inaction so common among believers when we are clearly called to both be discipled and also to make disciples of others all throughout Scripture, Somebody said to me recently, uh, you know, we had, I had actually done a mission series a number of months ago, and they said, <laughs> they said, you know, kind of, you know, snidely, they kind of said, yeah, you spent months on that, right? And they said, but it changed me, because I never realized how it, it's woven all throughout Scripture. I was like, yeah, baby, I know what I'm doing, right? It is all throughout Scripture. Our call to this, right? Now, for some of us, it may mean a a fear or a belief that we are not qualified. Or maybe there's a fear of man in there, like, you know, what will people say? Will I have all the answers? I don't know what to say and all that stuff. But here's the, the kicker. The closer that you get to Jesus, the more excited and the more emboldened you are in that, right? To share him. And the less fearful you are of it. For others, it may be the doubt of where or how to begin. What what do I do? How do I begin this? But here's the thing is taking risks, you know, in in your faith draws you closer to Christ. When you actually step out and do it, it, it draws you closer to Jesus and it sharpens us for that ministry. You get sharpened as you do the work, Right? So just as the disciples were called back to work, right, so are we. So in our context, this is what your pastor says to you. Get close to Jesus by word and prayer, individually, by yourself, in your own individual life. Allow him to eradicate that fear of not being qualified or or of how others will respond. Who cares how they respond? It's not your business, right? Right? Have a daily quiet time. Pray throughout the day. Actually use the spiritually formative practices available to you to build your spiritual life. Read outside of the Bible trustworthy books which lead you deeper in your faith. Don't read books that are deconstructing your faith. Stay away from those, and if you want to ask me who those are and who those authors are, I will tell you openly, I don't care. They are the, the, the fox in the hen house, but there are good books back there you can take for free. I don't care if you pay for them at all. Take them, read them, get busy on your faith, right? That's the first thing. Secondly, get close to Jesus in word and prayer on a regular basis in your church family, corporately. You can't do church by yourself. You can't do the Christian life by yourself. Utilize the opportunities available to you within it, within your church to eradicate the doubt of where or how to begin in this. Come early. Leave late for church. Listen well and pay attention prayerfully. Get involved in some capacity to serve the church make it a part a deeper part of your life get into and attend on a regular basis a community group invite and plan on attending the alpha course with whoever you do invite because we are trying to draw people in so that we have a chance to put our faith in action right and you don't have to have all the answers sometimes i don't know is a great answer I don't know. Let's go ask them, right? We do this together as a church. We do this together in Alpha as it comes up. And Luke 12, 12, remember that that verse says that when we are called before people to give an accounting or an answer to our faith, he says the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Sometimes you say the stupidest of things and then four years later somebody says, yeah, you know, I met Jesus because Jason over there said blah, blah, blah and it just made so much sense. And I was like, what? I made that so much sense with that? The Holy Spirit is working. It's not about you, right? It's really not. We may not have it all figured out. I certainly don't. But we are called to obedience in this area to start the conversations and trusting and praying that God will give us the words as we do this together. I was talking to somebody about, you know, there's that concept of predestination and election and all this stuff, and they're... They were, they were telling me how strongly they believe in it. And I was like, yeah, oh, whatever, you know. I go, I just, you know, if I hover on that too long, the Great Commission goes away. I just, I, I would like to say I don't fully understand all this totally. I know that I've been, and they, and they said, yeah, we are called to obedience there. I'm like, yep, we are. No matter what you think about whatever theologically, we are called to obedience in this, right? the book of acts is the perfect place to start looking at how and where to begin in ministry if you're feeling unsure about how to or where to begin in ministry first these disciples were told to return to jerusalem right and from there they were to spread outward right to as jesus commissioned them Uh, to do their first mission back in Matthew 10. When he did that, he said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And he's still sending us out like sheep among wolves. And then he outlined what it could be like. And not all of it is fun, but that's okay. But Jerusalem was their home base for the early church, right? That's, That's where they lived. That's their place. And that city became their mission field. And here's the thing. The eastern main line is our mission field. First and foremost. Right. In the same way, God doesn't necessarily require us or tear us away from everything that is familiar to us and send us, you know, some place across the world just to share the gospel. Some people have that specific calling. Kim and I went to Indonesia for nine years to do that. We were called there at that point in our lives. But right now I'm called here. You know, we have the opportunity to begin sharing the gospel in our homes, and our communities, and out into our workplaces, all the places where we already have familiarity, where we already have a sphere of influence, where we already know people, and we also already have this great network of believers around us who can stand alongside us and counsel us and aid us when we're struggling and pray for us. An article published in Christianity Today, shares how pastors, farmers, and activists have been working together. I think it's called Immigrant Hope. They they started this thing, Immigrant Hope. They've been working together to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of uh, migrant workers, both before and after the, the pandemic, right? And uh, Diane Martinez helped start this uh, immigration law clinic and you know, for the local population with, with her church. And it's provided all these opportunities to share the gospel as well. Becca McNeil writes this. She says, though they never require anyone to pray or sit through a gospel presentation to receive help, Immigrant Hope offers spiritual support to its clients as well. Rarely do we have anybody turn us down for prayer. I have rarely ever, when I've asked people to pray, up, to pray over them out there, Maybe once I've had somebody say, no, I don't want you to pray for me. But she says the same thing. Sometimes clients are so curious to hear more, and then we get to tell them about a heavenly citizenship where applications never get denied, right? I I like that quote. That's pretty cool. But pastors and farmers aren't the only people who can share the gospel, right? We know that. You know, an, an update from the Voice of the Martyrs, uh, a Voice of the Martyrs partner, um, if you ever read that magazine, it's a great magazine, good stories in there, but it's in Nigeria. Uh, we read about these young Christian students who uh, in this war-torn region, predominantly hostile to Christianity, and they are working together to learn how to read because they didn't learn how to read in their villages. And although they barely speak the same language, they have, and they haven't been tra- trained or equipped as you know teachers or pastors or anything like that, their stories, the stories that they're telling of their experiences and how God loved them through it and carried them through it have just gone out like crazy to all these other people. And, and because of the Internet, they're going to people they'll never meet. Maybe they'll meet them in heaven. I don't know, but it's happening, right? People are doing it. When we look throughout history, the church's core strength, the church's core strength has always been found in close-knit local bodies of believers, local churches who come together to share and to encourage each other in their faith, but also to share faith outside of their doors, Pastors and evangelists, people like that who go to seminary and are trained and blah, blah, blah. They'll always have a vital role, sure, in bringing the good news of the gospel to their areas, right? But when we read through Acts and the epistles, we are reminded over and over again that it's everyday workers, homemakers, and caregivers who, with their you know, sharing with their neighbors, standing in the gap, side by side, sharing with their neighbors, simple believers who make the greatest impact. And all of that ripples out from generation to generation. The angels reminded the disciples that there was work to be done as Jesus ascended. I can imagine standing there. But that work won't be done until he comes back. And he will come back in the same way, it says. Therefore, until that day, it's up to us to continue the work of the gospel so that all may know we are God's plan A and there is no plan B. I don't know if you know that. (laughs) So don't stand there looking up into the sky waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not what you've been called to. He has called you to put your hand to the plowshare and not look backwards in this work of the kingdom right now. Let me pray for us, Father. We. It's nice to end in those bells. It sort of reminds us that you are calling us out, Father. We ask that you would restore restore the joy of our faith. I, I think about that right now. That we don't really do anything that we don't desire. And so we ask that you would restore our desire and our joy of relationship with you. That's not something that I can conjure. That's not something I can say the words, but it's beyond my abilities to make that happen in myself or anybody else. It's only possible by your power, by your word, by your sacrificial life. And we thank you for that. So as we head into Christmas, we, we think about what you have done for us. The, the magnitude of, of a tiny baby in a manger. The magnitude of what that meant to the world. That little pinpoint in history, Father, where, that, circ, that we all circle around. We, we pray that you would make that grow in our hearts to understand why you came why you taught us, why you walked with us, why you ate with us, why you spent time with us, and why you said what you said before you ascended. We ask that you would convict our hearts in these ways, move us in powerful ways. In Christ's name we pray, amen.